This podcast is intended to provide general information about various recent developments in employment law and human resources best practices. Nothing in this presentation or in the comments of Ms. Johnson, Ms. Shannon, or any guest should be considered as the rendering of legal or other professional advice, and it is not directed at any specific cases or circumstances. Listeners are responsible for obtaining the necessary advice about their specific situations from their own counsel. These materials are intended for educational and informational purposes only. The presentation and these materials represent the opinions of the participants and not those of their law firms or companies. No part of these materials may be printed, photocopied, or otherwise reproduced, recorded, or stored, or transmitted in any form and by any means, electronic, mechanical, or otherwise, without the prior written permission of today's workplace podcast. Welcome to today's workplace, a podcast created to keep employers current on the latest employment law trends while providing proactive solutions to the everyday issues arising in today's rapidly changing workplace. Is your business prepared for today's workplace? Let's find out with your hosts, Barbara Johnson and Belinda Reed Shannon. Hello, welcome to today's workplace. We're very fortunate this morning to have a repeat guest, Courtney Malvo, to talk with us about recent developments in um, OSHA law. Courtney was on our program a few, a few weeks ago and gave us a primer on OSHA and explained how OSHA is impacting employers with respect to COVID-19. And today he's going to give us an update. Courtney Malvo is a principal in the Richmond, Virginia office of Jackson Lewis, and he is co-leader of the firm's Workplace Safety and Health Practice Group and the firm's construction industry team. His practice focuses on representing employers cited by OSHA and other regulatory agencies, sometimes following catastrophic incidents. Courtney advises and represents employers in employment law matters and retaliation claims, employment discrimination um, matters, unemployment benefits and wage claims. And he represents the industry on Virginia Safety and Health Codes Board and pulled together a broad coalition of business and safety associations to pass laws in four states to make voluntary compliance a permanent part of a state occupational safety and health act. Before joining Jackson Lewis, Courtney enforced occupational safety and health law and other state and federal labor laws as Virginia's labor commissioner. So once again, welcome Courtney to today's workplace. Well, thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure. And thank you, uh, Belinda, as well. Thank you again and welcome Courtney for coming back and speaking with us and giving us an update. So much has happened this year with COVID-19. So I can imagine that an agency uh, like uh, the Occupational Safety and Health um, Act agencies, both federal and state have had a lot to do in this area. Um, so one of the first questions I wanted to ask you is about COVID-19. It's a virus it, and it's not what we typically think of as a traditional 
safety hazard in the workplace. So why is it, you know, remind us, why is OSHA concerned about COVID-19? Well, and by the way, I really sincerely hope by the next time we talk, we'll talk about something other than COVID. We'll be past this pandemic, I'm hoping. (laughs) So uh, keep the masks, the hand sanitizer. Those of you choosing to get vaccinated, please do so we can can find something else. But uh, that's that's where we are. I, I will tell you in disclosure, I really don't think of it as much as a workplace hazard as I think a public health crisis. And it's, um, it's something that's spread both in the workplace and communally and uh, worldwide. So, uh, so that's just my personal opinion. I'd put that out there to say that this is something that's really more under the domain of CDC, health departments, those types of institutions. Now the FDA and working uh, with, you know, with the vaccines. And so I don't see OSHA as having as strong a role in this as possibly it does. But OSHA does take a role in this. And to the extent that we're spreading the virus at work, then then I do think there is a potentially limited role. But but I emphasize limited. OSHA has had some has enforced some standards and it increasingly into this winter has enforced standards like the personal protective equipment standard, the respiratory standard, um, record keeping standards, and even what's called the general duty clause, the catch-all. And so OSHA and states that have their own OSHA programs are enforcing those. So yes, there is spread in the workplace, much like there is communally. The, The tough thing for employers is figuring out what's the difference? Is it spread at the workplace? Is it spread communally? How do you know? And so I, I do think that if employers take responsible steps like places of public accommodation and, and other establishments, um, then I think if they do the right thing, then I think they've done what they need to do. But in terms of extra enforcement and extra attention in the workplace, I don't know that that's a good fit for where we are. Interesting. Courtney, what regulatory changes are you seeing at OSHA? So I mentioned, and right now we're talking mid-December, and so the current administration in charge of OSHA will be in place for about another five weeks. And so it has responded with, uh, again, enforcement of existing standards that have been with us, and it has shown that by, by using those standards, it can use those as effective tools. I think there has been less use of what I call the general, what's called the general duty clause, which is, you know, something that doesn't fit under those standards that we have become familiar with over the years. And so there's some use of that. And I noted this, uh, the last time we spoke, there were states, Virginia was passing or had passed an emergency temporary standard specific to COVID. And uh, since then, California has moved forward with one, Oregon, uh, Michigan, even New Jersey has a standard, even though it doesn't have its own OSHA program. Mm-hmm. So some states have stepped up and done that. So what will we see? I think once President-elect Biden lifts his hand from the Bible at the swearing-in ceremony, Shortly after, we will see an emergency temporary center for OSHA nationally. 
And so what provisions it will include, um, what states will kind of look to for guidance and which way it will go, we'll see. But I think one of the first things we'll see is an emergency temporary standard for COVID for OSHA. And then for those 28 states that run their own OSHA regimes, they're called state plan states. I do see OSHA pretty much kind of coming down on those states and saying, look, thou shalt follow this standard and you will have an emergency temporary standard for COVID, whether you like it or not. <laughs> and so I think we'll see that. And I think we'll see a whole lot more enforcement as well. The one thing I'd like you to um, help us understand, and I know you talked about this before, but you've mentioned the general duty clause a couple of times. So what it, tell us again what the general duty clause is and why it's significant in the um, enforcement of um, of OSHA? Sure. So the OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Act uh, passed in 1970. And then shortly after that, OSHA got moving on promulgating books and books of standards. And I have them right here on my bookshelf. They are, uh, they are, they're all around me. That's my world. You said <laughs> OSHA that standards. with pride, Courtney. <laughs> What's that? You said that with great pride. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it's pride or if it's Oh, it, it, it may be a little sad. I don't know. When my assistant comes in with the new fresh OSHA standards and brings them in, I literally jump with excitement. It's, it's, it's you don't want to go, the, you don't want to go there. It's, 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 it's just, uh, it's not where you want to be there. There is only a handful of OSHA lawyers out there and, and they get what I'm saying and the rest of the world just shakes their head. So when OSHA came out, when OSHA was established, it, it really got busy in promulgating these standards, books and books of standards. They apply to general industry, they apply to construction, they apply to maritime, you name it. And so uh, the only thing is, no matter how many brains you involve in this, no matter how much time you put into this, you can't possibly have a standard for everything that can go wrong, for every hazard out there. And so... This all happened over 40 years ago. I, in disclosure, I was in elementary school when all this happened. For everything they could not have thought of, they established, well, the, the OSHA Act itself has what's called the General Duty Clause, and it's a catch-all. And basically, it requires employers to provide employment in a place of employment that's free of recognized hazards. So if there's a latent hazard or if there's something that you could not have foreseen or take, you know, then the employer isn't necessarily in the hook for that. But, and that's how OSHA is different from workers' comp. Workers' comp's about people getting hurt. OSHA is more about recognized hazards. So it is for anything and everything that they couldn't have dreamt of. Well, the novel coronavirus by definition is new. Nobody could have conceived of the novel coronavirus until a year ago. And passing a standard, I mean, you think passing an act of Congress takes a long time. Try passing an OSHA standard. And then they get enjoined in litigation. So it takes years. So that's what the general duty clause is. And there are elements as lawyers that we have to prove to make our case. And so the lawyers who represent OSHA would have to make a case that it would apply and, and meet the elements for general, general duty clause violation, but it certainly can be done. And I think 
frankly, that this is exactly the kind of time that the general duty clause would kick in for something that nobody dreamt of, but, you know, could be looked at as a workplace hazard. So in, in addition to understanding general duty clause, how about explaining to us worker exposure levels and protective measures? What, what does that mean? Oh, well, and I think what you might be, is let's say in the COVID context, you may have exposure levels, um, low exposure levels, medium, high or very high. And so generally, um, like for example, in COVID, if you have low exposure, I am alone in my office. I, my assistant came in a little while ago. She's at least 20 feet away. I'm as low hazard as it gets. And so there's not a whole lot I need to do to protect myself. Maybe I'll wash my hands. If I walk around, I'll wear a face covering, but that's, that's about it. Medium hazard is if, for example, you work for a retailer. I mentioned I was out doing my last minute Christmas shopping last night. And so everybody's got the masks on. It's busy. There are a lot of people. There's some close contacts happening. You're touching a lot of the same stuff. And so then you, that's more of a medium hazard type situation. And, and then, you know, God forbid, if you land in the hospital, those folks who are working there, I know people who are working in emergency rooms right now yeah. and uh, they're exposed to the COVID. They're dealing with bloodborne pathogens. There's people who come in because they are very sick or having problems. And so that's more high hazard. And so the protective measures there might be more in terms of, for example, a negative pressure ventilation or you know, additional personal protective equipment, you name it. And so, you know, you just have different levels of protection depending on the hazard level that you're, of your exposure. So Courtney, given the anticipated increase in enforcement, possibly national mandates with respect to OSHA enforcement, even in those um, states that have a state enforcement scheme, what should employers be doing now? What should they anticipate? What should they be doing now in terms of preparing for increased enforcement? So if you look at the emergency temporary standards that are online and notice that, and I, 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 I'll try not to get too much into the politics, but it does kind of play a part in the enforcement and where the agency goes, because you know the agency is going to change once there's a change of administration. And so I anticipate that with an emergency temporary standard, what was a recommendation that employers actually put pen to paper and write uh, an infectious disease preparedness and response plan. That's something that was recommended last spring, I think back in March, I think that will become a requirement. And so in Virginia, when we were the first to pass a standard, employers said, oh my gosh, how do I do this? And so, um, and some critical thought had to be put into that for each employer. There are templates put out by the agency, but the templates include a lot of requirements that don't necessarily exist in the law. Some of it is suggestions that the agency just kind of put in there. And I think employers, if they have not done so already, putting together infectious disease preparedness and response plan uh, would be a strong move. And if it doesn't contain every single element in the standard that comes out, you're probably going to cover 80 or 90% of it with good advice. Another thing to do is, if you haven't done so, training. And a great starting point is the CDC guidance that's coming out. And uh, you could also take a look and see, well, what other suggestions are 
contained in those emergency temporary standards in the states. The incoming administration has a transition team that includes many people from California. So if you want to see where the country's going, I think looking at where Cal OSHA has been provides a good starting point. Mm-hmm. And so, and also in California, is the illness and injury prepare, uh, preparedness plans. And so I2P2 is what we call it. This is something that, you know, employers basically have to put together like the infectious disease plan in writing uh, a plan to deal with injuries and illnesses generally, recognizing the hazards that exists, what kind of protections are being put in place. And so I think that's something that, again, it's not required, but there was an attempt under the prior administration to uh, enact that. That's another thing that I think that could be coming down the pike. And so uh, that might be a good other way for employers to get ahead of the game. Because I really do think that's those are some of the directions where things are heading with OSHA. So in addition to um, the preparedness plans and some of the other things you just mentioned, was there official guidance from uh, OSHA uh, for returning employees to the workplace? Uh, Really more from CDC. And so Mm -hmm. OSHA tends to follow CDC on that. And that's evolving. And so return to work. It's interesting. So it was right now it's if you catch COVID and if you don't use a test-based return to work, then there's a time-based and that's 10 days. And that's Hmm. 10 days after you provided the specimen that got a positive test. Okay. And then from that point, it's 10 days after that, plus a 24 hour period of no symptoms. So that includes no fever. And that's without the benefit of any fever reducing medications. And so that's, that's where we are with return to work right now. And also CDC on a different topic, but related is people who have been exposed mm-hmm. to someone with COVID. And so that's where quarantining comes in. And that's a little bit different. And so you haven't had a positive test but you think you might have caught it because you're in close contact with somebody and maybe you have symptoms or maybe you don't, but you don't have a positive test yourself. And so it used to be 14 days and still CDC says 14 days, but there are conditions in which you might be able to shorten that time frame, uh, you know, down to 10 days or if with a test then do down to 10 if you're symptom free or even seven if it's symptom free with a, a, a negative test. But keep an eye because CDC, as it's looking at case by case by case, it's kind of redefining its terms, especially when it, when it comes to return to work and quarantining. And so I'm hoping that when OSHA passes a standard, it is a standard that will embrace the changing science. Because if, it, if, if the standard is so detailed that it sticks the science in a cryogenic freeze and you're stuck with the science of January, and then you find yourself in March or April with CDC going in another direction. I'm hoping that the standard will embrace those changes that CDC comes out with. Let's talk a little bit about the incoming administration. Um, did President-elect Biden commit to anything on the OSHA front? Has he gone on record thus far as saying what his views are with respect to OSHA? So what, what's um, he said so far? 
So it's funny. I mentioned OSHA lawyers are few and uh, <laughs> we can be a little geeky, but uh, for whatever reason, we're, we became in vogue a little bit this year for whatever reasons. Um, well, COVID, of course, we had a presidential candidate campaigning on what he'll do with OSHA. And we are usually the <laughs> island of misfit toys out there. Uh, nobody's paying attention to us. And when we heard campaign pledges on OSHA standards, we thought, oh my God, I mean, <laughs> what's the world come to? What a year, um, what a year. <laughs> right, nobody campaigns on OSHA, but uh, candidate Biden did and now president-elect. And one thing he promised, which I don't think he'll be able to do, uh, I think he'll do partly, is he wants to double the number of inspectors. And so interestingly, under the current administration, by attrition, the number of OSHA inspectors out there has dropped and dropped and dropped uh, to a historically low level. And so I, I think that you can replenish those positions to get additional positions will require authorization and funding from Congress, depending on what the makeup of Congress will be. We don't yet completely know. I'm a little skeptical, especially when money is tight. And so in Virginia, we can't spend deficit spend you know we can't go into deficit spending like the federal government can so there's more leeway to get more funding for that but but we'll see and that's one thing that candidate biden promised so there will be some other changes i think you're going to see following the covid emergency temporary standard i think they'll pick up a permanent infectious disease standard and actually that was pushed under the prior administration after h1n1 the swine flu and now with COVID, I think there's going to be a whole lot more, a, a big a big push for that. And that's been promised. There's going to be some administrative changes. And so you may hear me say, talk about how policy is personnel or personnel's policy, who's in place has a lot to do with how you enforce. Mm -hmm. And so little things that may not get a lot of press certainly may make a dent. And so, for example, I think the guidance that OSHA comes out with, it's going to change. And the guidance that used to, well, the, the guidance now that kind of encourages incentivizing safety in workplaces, I think will go back in reverse to kind of discouraging that with discouraging language. And the reason being that there are unions and other stakeholders who believe that you're not necessarily incentivizing safety itself, but the reporting of injuries and illnesses. And so they tend to frown upon incentives, employee incentives. So I think there'll be some changes in that. I, I, I'm 99% sure there are gonna be additional whistleblower protections um, coming down the pike. That's just something that, you know, that, that labor has been thirsting for in, in a big way. And it's, it's been proposed in Congress in various ways. And so that's something that you're really, I think you're gonna see. I think you're gonna see a lot more in terms of I mentioned the state plans that um, kind of do their own thing. Mm -hmm. I think that, for example, North Carolina, South Carolina states where they did not necessarily raise their penalties commensurate to what federal OSHA did several years ago. I think there will be a push in those states to get those penalties in line with federal OSHA's penalties. Uh, and that was an 80% increase. And that was pretty big. So, you know, you'll see that. And also, I think a lot more cooperation between the agencies and sharing information. And they do some of that already, but I think you'll see more of it, information sharing and referring matters for potential enforcement between 
OSHA, National Labor Relations Board, EEOC, uh, and, uh, agencies that touch on employment. And who knows, maybe IRS because employee misclassification. Mm. Well, whether you are deemed to be an employee or uh, an independent contractor is the fundamental question for OSHA. OSHA can't step in if you have a fun, an independent contractor, mm. but if you're misclassifying, it sure does. And we'll have a tendency to share and refer matters uh, with other agencies. So those are some things I definitely think you'll see. Do you think that, you know, you, do you see any any kind of specific restructuring within OSHA to establish kind of like COVID-19 focused units uh, since we, since this is novel and we don't know if in the long run we'll be able to manage it the same way you've managed other workplace safety hazards through OSHA. Um, do, so do you see anything like that happening? I don't know if it will entail internal structural changes. And to be honest, I haven't heard anything on that. And that's a decision that might get made once um, there's a nominee for the Assistant Secretary of Labor in charge of OSHA. It might be that I'm out of the loop. It, well, you know, there are some loops I'm in and some I'm not. It, it might be that it's a little more granular than where people are, and they may give the Assistant Secretary of Labor for OSHA leeway to try to structure that. Yeah, oh. I was just asking because it, you know, it seems like COVID is here to stay for a while. And um, again, it, it has introduced so many different um, things that we have to be aware of and different ways that we now have to keep employees safe in the workplace. And so um, seems like it would take some focused uh, energy to to kind of blaze that new trail in figuring out now how does a, an agency like OSHA, whether it's state or federal, manage those issues? Right, right. And right now we don't even have a department of we don't even have a labor secretary nominee. So that's the next question. What does your crystal ball tell you in terms of <laughs> who those people, who that person might be, who's um, who's up? Do you think? Uh, there are several of the names that have been mentioned and many, uh, many individuals who have been considered, who are on transition team or considered are from California. And so look West, candidate Biden, and has been consistent in saying he would be the most pro-union, most pro-labor president in history. So I think look um, for folks with ties in those communities. Um, stay tuned. <laughs> and, you know, it's interesting, we, we, a number of trial balloons get floated, and then they reach for somebody nobody heard of. So uh, we'll see. So has, um, do you know if, if OSHA has started issuing citations to employers for COVID-19 infractions? They have. Now that ramped up in the last several weeks, arguably it very well could be because inspections take a while and the agency has up to six months to issue a citation and they're not always announced and that data may not be provided. The current administration has been more reticent about issuing press releases on citations issued. And that's another change I think we'll see is I think we'll see more in terms of uh, citations getting put out to the news media by the agency. So there has been a pickup 
uptick uh, recently, but I think that'll increase with more inspectors. Also, another thing I think we'll see, there is more egregious and uh, higher monetary penalty citations, and maybe more in terms of criminal citations. And there are e there's even, uh, there are even suggestions uh, of individual criminal liability for employers who may be in a position of authority. And so that's something that, um, you know, we may see. That's something new or has OSHA used criminal liability before? Of individuals, no, but a criminal, a criminal actions, yes. And so, like I said, personnel is policy. And so some might be a little bit more conservative and reserved in issue of issuing a criminal and others might be more uh, apt yeah. to do so. I had a case when I first stepped in as Virginia's labor commissioner, and it was the worst I'd seen. Mm -hmm. And I, I won't get graphic, but it was um, a fatality. It was a landscaper and there's a piece of equipment that uh, can be very destructive. And they removed, actively removed guards from that equipment, safety guards. And they had children in their family working with them and it caused the fatality. And I will just leave it at that. It was the worst I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. And at that point I said, you know what, because there were active steps taken to remove safety guards and involve children, then I recommended that we move on with a criminal um, because of, you know, criminal uh, citation. Now, in that case, it was up to the discretion of a Commonwealth attorney to pursue. Ultimately, it wasn't pursued, but it's kind of a judgment call. But there are some cases where you really do say, look, this was so blatant and you took active steps. And this is more than just the business being on the line that a monetary penalty just won't do it. So it does happen. But I think we'll see more of that. You know, Belinda asked about um, citations and whether there's been an increase in citations. Could you just walk us through what an employer can expect if, for example, they get that unwanted call from OSHA and an inspector shows up? What can they expect in terms of process if they are indeed issued a citation? Sure. So, and, and since March or April, employers have I think they might have gotten a little spoiled because most of the the enforcement has been by fax, phone, and telephone, and not by the the uh, surprise inspections. And so OSHA really scaled back on those, and it will tend to show up if there's something catastrophic that occurred, there's a fatality for certain reasons. But the programmed inspections had really dialed back on those. That's something that once the a pandemic, and they do that because they don't want, they're, they're employers too. They want to keep their employees safe. And so they're looking out for, for inspectors. And so I think it'll ramp up when the pandemic begins to wane and they feel safer doing so. And so when that happens, for those who, who've been subjected to one, they're not fun. I've had trips to the dentist that were more fun, <laughs> but- um, Pretty bad. So, yeah. And, and one thing is when they show up, you know, you can let them wait just a little bit until you have the right person to connect with that, the inspector, someone who, who kind of is aware of the limits of what the inspection should be, especially if they're not doing a general inspection of the entire workplace, but are there maybe on a complaint for a specific purpose, then the Fourth Amendment does kick in and they do have requirements. You, they can be required to get a warrant that would limit 
and, and that would articulate the limits of um, the search. And I, I don't necessarily, usually employers waive that, but there should be some kind of a de definition as to what they're looking for. And you wanna know if this is a targeted inspection. And if it is, then what are we looking for? And so I tell them, look, you know, make sure you get the right person involved so that they can stay kind of cool, uh, ask the right questions along the way, uh, take pictures when they take pictures. And it's fine to ask the inspector questions. I think they wanna be asked. As long as you're professional, as long as you're polite, then it should be a conversation because there's information you will not get later in the process. You will get cited and have to speak with the agency in an informal conference, and you're not going to know what's in, your, in the file that they're looking at. They will have interviewed employees behind closed doors, and you will not have been privy to that conversation. And so the agency will come from a standpoint of superior knowledge through the informal conference. So, you know, let them wait a little bit, pour them a little coffee, uh, sneak in decaf. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm not big on highly caffeinated OSHA inspectors <laughs> and, you know, and treat it as a conversation and, and understand that I think getting advice for the informal conference and through the inspection is important because sometimes the agency does ask for information that it may not necessarily have a right to. And I think it's good to have someone who's familiar with the agency who can kind of get, sometimes you can kind of, you, when you give information, you're truthful, you're upfront, you're also trying to shape what you provide and how you present information and have a lot to do with how the citation comes out. And so, so that, and that's important. And then you have the informal conference. And while it's informal, I think a lot of folks have, the misimpression that just because it is informal that it should be treated informally. You may have an informal demeanor about you, but you need to be very well prepared. You have to know your legal defenses. You have to know um, what evidence they would probably bring against you, the likelihood of their winning. You, you really, and, and I like to go in with basically a script of who's gonna say what. And it may sound casual and it may seem informal, but it is very, very well prepared. And I'm speaking to the legal issues that the area director will recognize in that conversation and then reconsider the citation in light of the arguments made. But you don't just show up and say, here are all my documents, what will you give me? Who plays poker by showing your hand and saying, do I win? Yeah. You don't do that. You you know, you, you have to play your cards with skill. And so I do emphasize that. That sounds like um, some very timely advice for employers, especially in light of the fact um, that you mentioned earlier about the incoming administration looking to um, increase the size and the impact of OSHA. And so I think um, employers who may have been a little bit asleep or taking a nap on you know, the realities of having to face an on-site inspection or face an enforcement action probably need to um, put some corresponding resources in place to make sure that they don't find themselves in a compromising position. So that being said, uh, what would you say are the top three things uh, that we need to remember or that employers need to remember in light of, you know, the, this new corner that that we've turned 
brought on by COVID-19? I, I think the most important one of them is to stay on top of the science as it comes out from CDC, because where CDC goes, OSHA follows. Even, and I, I'm an OSHA lawyer, I don't do civil liability. I, I don't do wrongful death suits or things like that. I do know, however, that generally, if you get an OSHA citation, you'll live to see another day. If God forbid you're faced with civil liability, that could be much more damaging. And so, um, and I say that to say, if you're, even if you're, if you're following the science and you're using best practices in good faith, even if you don't technically get something wrong, you might get dinged with an OSHA citation. It's a whole lot better than landing in potential uh, situation of negligence, especially if it, God forbid, is a um, wrongful death suit. That's so that's pretty critical. Another thing is to, I would say, being prepared and also getting prepared now before OSHA knocks. It's a gift, and if there are steps that you can take in terms of what I like to do. What I do is fairly simple. I take the elements of a defense and I say, are we, do we have those, those facts in place that would support my defense? And if not, how do we do that now? It's almost like putting yourself in a time machine, going back in time and saying, okay, had I been cited by OSHA, what would I want my lawyer to be able to say? I'd like my lawyer to be able to say that. I had my training done with this employee. It was documented. Here's the curriculum. It's, you know, down the line. And uh, we're disciplining people. Right? We have documented and documents. We love documents. We hate recollections. We hate, gee, I think we, you know, uh, we hate that. We love to, if you can document your case and prove you took the right steps in advance, we're going to be okay. And we'll be able to establish a defense. So that's two things. You know, a third thing I'll throw in there, which we didn't discuss, is um, vaccinations. And that's a big one um, right now. Yeah, we, might need, we might need to talk a little bit about that. <laughs> yes. And I just saw a survey uh, from a supplier. So it may not be a scientific survey, but it said that 59% of employees surveyed by that supplier said that they approve of their employer mandating vaccines. And that's very interesting. When flu shot time comes around, we're encouraged and enabled, you know, and we're seeing that EEOC with the guidance that just came out is actually saying, you know, yes, employers do have a path to mandating vaccines in the workplace, but if they do mandate them, and especially if they administer them themselves, that there are landmines to avoid. And so right now, I mean, we're getting my we're we're getting called and we're 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 advising people on their policies and and advising. Okay, how are they putting together their vaccination programs, mandated or not, and how are they staying out of hot water with EEOC? You know, um, under 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 various acts. Uh, so there there there's there's a lot there to it, and that's something that, you know, I think a lot of employers are jumping on it and getting solid advice and there's flexibility that you may need to have because the situation can change between now and a few months from now when more people are vaccinated. But getting that advice and thinking it through now uh, is, is very important. If you haven't started, this is the time to start with that. Very good. Thank you very much for this update. 
and um, we'll have to see what happens in 2021. But Happy New Year to you. Happy and New Year. Thank you for being a guest on today's workplace. Thank you, Thanks Courtney. It was great talking to you. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Happy New Year. You've been listening to Today's Workplace with Barbara Johnson and Belinda Reed Shannon. If you like what you heard, click subscribe so you don't miss out on future updates and episodes. For more information about today's episode, check out todaysworkplace.com. That's T-O-D-A-Y-S-W-O-R-K-P-L-A-C-E dot com.